Friends, good morning and welcome to Sunday School here at First Pres. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres. I serve as a scholar in residence, and I'm delighted that you are here this morning as we start another six-week church-wide Sunday School series. It's a program that we call First in Focus. And if you've been with us before for First in Focus, and I know many of you have, some of you might be visiting with, the, for, with us for the first time this morning. If so, we especially welcome you, or others might be members of First Pres but have not done this program before. Let me just say a word about what First in Focus is and how it'll work over the next couple weeks. First in Focus is uh, a, an adult Sunday school class series that we launched last year. Uh, it's a six-week series, and we begin here on the first week of the series with a lecture that gives us something of an overview of the topic at hand. And then for the next four weeks, so in weeks two through five, all of our individual Sunday school classes, adult Sunday school classes at First Pres, will go back, meet in their individual classrooms. They will continue the conversation that began in this lecture in the first week using a curriculum that I have written to help uh, continue to study the topic at hand. And then in the sixth and final week, which for us will be December the 3rd, We'll be back here in Fifield Hall for another lecture that brings together the series as a whole, reflects upon where we've been, and thinks about more explicitly about why this stuff matters in our faith and practice. We started this series for two, with two goals in mind. First, we realized that First Pres is a large and diverse community, and there are always many, many different conversations happening about faith and life and theology, and all of that is wonderful. But we also thought it would be nice from time to time to bring together a broader group of people to have a more focused conversation, thus the name First in Focus, a more focused conversation around a single topic that we believe matters to Christian faith and practice. The other reason why we've done this program is to provide additional curriculum support for our many Sunday school classes while still preserving their ability to meet on their own uh, and, and have the, the, the dynamics and the friendships and the fellowship that happen in their specific Sunday school classes. So we hope those two reasons have come together uh, to produce a helpful uh, curriculum for this church. Uh, we started this program, as I mentioned, last year uh, with, I should turn this on, excuse me. We started this program last year where we did two topics. We talked about practicing the Sabbath last fall and then praying the Psalms in the spring. Uh, if you were there with us, with us for that, those series, we're delighted for that. But if you missed it or want to catch the reruns, all of the content can be found online. If you go to uh, firstpresatl.org backslash first in focus, you'll find all of the materials from those previous studies. You'll find little ebook versions of the studies themselves. This is the Praying the Psalm series. So you can literally just click through these little eBooks and get the content. You can download them. You can even download a leader's guide if you're looking for more additional notes and background information uh, on them. So all of that is there on the website uh, for your access. There is some food and coffee in the back, and I welcome you to enjoy any of that uh, this morning throughout the program. The new series that we're beginning uh, this morning is called Living the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to be thinking this week and the next five weeks about uh, the meaning and significance of this very, very familiar prayer in, in the Christian church. So I want to begin with a prayer. And so it seems fitting to me that we would pray together the Hail Mary. No, no, I mean, um, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, that we'll pray together the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. So join me in praying that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Few words, in my opinion, are more universally recognized as an expression of Christian faith than the Lord's Prayer. Think about it. Christian denominations throughout history have quibbled about theology. Churches have split over numerous issues about the age of baptism to women's ordination and a whole span of things in between. And yet, each Sunday, across the world, in different countries, in different languages, and in different denominations, communities of faith say together, the Lord's Prayer. It's actually amazing that there is one thing out there that unites the, the vast diversity of Christian denominations. Even in the Reformation, when the Reformers were reworking almost every single aspect of the Catholic Mass, from the music to the liturgy uh, to the Lord's Supper, even as the Reformers were, were reworking all those things, one of the things they continued to do that the Catholics already had done was pray the Lord's Prayer. It has been that tie that binds Christians together, not only presently in our diversity, but also throughout history. And it's for this reason that, that the Lord's Prayer is, for many of us, is one of the first things that we learn, one of the first expressions of faith that we learn. Now, that's a good thing because it's not all that long. We don't start with the Westminster Catechism or something like that. We start with something short. Do you all remember when you first learned the Lord's Prayer? a long time ago. For me, now I grew up Catholic, as many of you know, for me it was in preparation for what we called First Holy Communion. And in, in the Catholicism that I grew up in, that happened in first grade. So I was about six or seven when I first learned the Lord's Prayer. And of course I was very proud of myself for learning it, uh, for memorizing it. That was a big thing as a six-year-old. Uh, six However, as a moment of confession, I should say, you know when we say, hallowed be thy name? I thought it was hallo. Ed, that is, that somehow God's name had a halo around it, and so it was hallowed be uh, God's name. Apparently, that was not the case, but I still passed First Holy Communion. Um, what's maybe even more remarkable is not only that this prayer binds so many different Christians together, past and present, but what's remarkable is how often this prayer gets prayed outside of churches, and outside of explicitly Christian context. As many of you know, I was a college athlete, and in the locker room before matches, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. No, that's not because, please believe me, that's not because all of my teammates were Christian or were, were even devout or pious in any way. That certainly was not the case. But in that moment, in that one moment, those words knit us together in remarkable ways. And actually, if you're if, to, to stick in the world of sports, uh, so often on sidelines, after the end of games, before games, games, chaplains will lead athletes together in a, in, a, in a joint prayer, and that prayer is often the Lord's Prayer. Now, having worked with athletes in the past, I was a coach for the first five years outside of college, I know that athletes don't always get things right when it comes to religion. And so here's a funny story from back in the 1980s. Uh, this is, for any of you football fans, this has to do with the Chicago Bears. Back in the 80s, many of you will know that they had a famous coach named Mike Ditka. 
He was not. He was known as kind of a tough and rumble sort of guy. And so he was leading a pregame talk, and uh, he said, he said, now look, when I finish this talk, he pointed to William the Refrigerator Perry. Now, if you remember that guy, he was 340-pound lineman before it was common to have 340-pound linemen. So Ditka says to Perry, okay, when I finish up, you lead everyone in the Lord's Prayer. <coughs> So that happens, and Jim McMahon, who was the quarterback and some, some, something of an irreverent sort of figure, he looks over at Perry, and he sees Perry just gushing with sweat. And so he nudges the chaplain and says, hey, I bet Perry doesn't know the words of the Lord's Prayer. And the chaplain's like, no, 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 he knows it, surely he knows it. And McMahon says, I bet you 50 bucks. <laughs> The fridge doesn't know the words to the Lord's Prayer. So Dicka goes on and on and on, and uh, at the end of it, at the end of it, so of course he gestures over uh, to William Perry, and everyone bows their head, and there was, a, there was a quiet and long pause, and McMahon thinks, okay, he doesn't know the words, and then William Perry begins, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. The chaplain felt a tap on his shoulder, and it was McMahon. McMahon says, here's my 50 bucks. I had no idea Perry knew the words of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so it's amazing what you can get away with when your audience doesn't know uh, the content. Now, uh, for those of you who might not be Bears fans, here's a Packers version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, this isn't exactly the Lord's Prayer. It has been somewhat adapted, or at least I have not been able to find the Bible translation that includes these words. But this was circulated in 2008. <laughs> Our Favre, who art in Lambeau, hallowed be thine arm. Thy bowl will come, it will be won in Phoenix, which is where the Super Bowl was that year, as it is in Lambeau. Give us this Sunday our weekly win, and give us many touchdown passes. But do not let others pass against us. Lead us not into frustration, but deliver us to the valley of the sun. For thine is the MVP, the best of the NFC, and the glory of the cheeseheads, now and forever. Go get them. Amen. <laughs> I thought a prayer like that would be appreciated here in football-loving South. Now... Here's the thing with the Lord's Prayer. Despite our collective familiarity with this prayer, or maybe exactly because we are so familiar with this prayer, I believe that we actually rarely stop to think about the words that we are praying. We know it so well. It's so rote. It's so routine that we don't, we don't reflect on what these words mean, let alone what they mean for our lives of faith. What does it mean for God's name to be hallowed? Not hallowed, but hallowed. What does it mean to pray for our daily bread? This differs quite a lot for those in this room now and for those in this room three hours ago. And what about that line about forgiveness? Is it trespasses or debts? We'll talk about that in a second. And does it matter? What's the relationship between our forgiveness in Christ and our obligation to forgive others? And then there's that stuff about temptation and evil at the end of the prayer. What does that mean? How does that translate into our modern lives? These are just some of the questions that, we're going, that are going to occupy our attention over the next six weeks. And here's an outline of where we're headed. Today, as I said, will be an overview of some of the key features of the Lord's Prayer. And then in each of the next four weeks, as you go back to your individual studies, uh, we'll just take little bits and pieces of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name in week two, and then so on and so forth down through week five, and then in week six, when we come back together for something of a synthesis and reflection, we'll talk a little bit about the history of use. When did the Lord's Prayer start getting used in churches? How has it been used by the reformers in various different traditions? And we'll also talk about the ongoing relevance of the Lord's Prayer in our faith 
today. Now, as for today, I'm going to give you an overview, as I said here, of a number of key features about the Lord's Prayer, and here's how we'll do it. I'm going to give you a, a top 10 list of things you need to know about the Lord's Prayer. And if you know these top 10 things, you're gonna sound really smart at that cocktail party. Well, I guess it depends what sort of cocktail party you go to. But if you go to a churchy cocktail party, you're gonna knock it out of the park if you can remember a lot of these 10 things. But, but more seriously, these 10 things I'm gonna highlight that, 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 that bring out some of the key features of the Lord's Prayer are gonna set the table for us to understand how and why the Lord's Prayer can continue to function to shape uh, us as spiritual be beings and to shape our faith uh, in our lives today. So let's turn to those 10 things as we get started. All right, did you know the Lord's Prayer is never called the Lord's Prayer in the Bible? The Lord's Prayer is never called the Lord's Prayer in the Bible. The scripture itself does not give it its name. There's no little title that appears uh, in the New Testament when Jesus is about to give the Lord's Prayer. No little t title pops up. Um, and not even elsewhere in the Gospels or even in Paul's letters do we find this particular prayer referred to as the Lord's Prayer, although that's what we all call it today. So where does the name the Lord's Prayer come from? Our first evidence of this comes from 3rd century CE, so about 250 years or so after the time of Christ. Uh, a person named Cyprian of, of Carthage is writing a letter, and he references the Lord's Prayer. And in Latin, he calls it the Oratio Dominica, or the Lord's Prayer. That's the first time that, that this prayer gets a name, or at least the first record that we have uh, of this prayer being called something. And that name is very, very popular and gets used and passed on for a long time. However, there's a parallel tradition that, that starts just a little bit after that. Um, there's another Latin name for this prayer. It's called the Pater Noster. Maybe some of you know this, but that uh, means the Our Father. Why would you call this the Our Father? That's the very first word. Now, of course, uh, the, the prayer, as we have in the New Testament, is written in Greek, so this is the Latin translation of it. But it was common to refer to either a text or even a book or a prayer uh, to refer to its title by the very first words uh, in its line. So these two traditions continue. I think mostly in Protestant circles, we refer to it as the Lord's Prayer, although growing up Catholic, I knew it as the Our Father. Uh, that's, that's the name I, I knew. In fact, when I first got into Protestant circles and they were talking about the Lord's Prayer, I didn't know that I knew that prayer. Uh, but it turns out that I, was, uh, that I was okay on that front. So that's one little thing. The Lord's Prayer was not called the Lord's Prayer in Scripture. Here's point two, maybe a little bit more interesting. Did you know that the Lord's Prayer appears in two different places in the Bible? Now, for 37 and a half bonus points... Um, does anyone know where those two places are? And I'll take general references, but you can't just say New Testament. It has to be a little bit more, a little bit more than that. Does anyone know? Matthew. Matthew and Luke. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'll settle for the, for the two gospel names. That's good. In Matthew 6, uh, 19 to 13, it's actually part of Jesus's long address, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, where he deals with a number of different moral issues. He's in many ways, in this, in this context of Matthew, Jesus is reinterpreting the law and also adding some new laws to it. Uh, and then the other text is in Luke, Luke 11, 1 through 4. And here uh, it's, in a, it's in a series of different teachings on discipleship. Now, so that was for 37 and a half bonus points. For uh, about 144 bonus points, does anyone know what are the two stories they're very, very, very familiar. What are the two stories that immediately precede uh, the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11? And if you've been to seminary, you're counting this too. You can weigh in. 
Good no. Mary Martha and the Good Samaritan. Okay, so see me afterwards for those bonus points. Um, uh, no, that's exactly right. This, uh, the prayer comes immediately on the heels of that well-known story about the Good Samaritan and then also the story of Mary and Martha attending to Jesus. Now, why do these contexts matter? Well, I think in Matthew and, and Luke, the Lord's Prayer means something a little bit different because of its different context. So let's think about Luke, uh, or let's start with Matthew first. As I said, Matthew's, uh, in, in uh, this text, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, and, and that's that place, by the way, where we hear all those familiar sayings, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or those antitheses, you have heard it said, dot, 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 but I tell you, that's the Sermon on the Mount. You probably have, have heard it in various places. And in, in the particular context of chapter 6, 9 through 13, Jesus is teaching about prayer, and he has this to say about prayer right before we get to the Lord's Prayer, and starting in, in verse 5. And Jesus says, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. I think that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But whenever you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, he's, so Jesus isn't necessarily critiquing prayer or public prayer. He's critiquing a certain attitude of public prayer where you pray in the streets or you pray uh, wherever it is in order to be recognized as being pious, right? So it's not an authentic prayer, but it's, a, it's kind of a showy prayer. I mean, there's a certain irony here though, right? Because the, the context of the Lord's prayer is to go pray in secret, pray with a closed door. And yet today in Christianity, it's the most public prayer that we have. I think we're in the right spirit, though, because it's, it's not to be done in this showy way. Now, the second part of it, uh, Matthew continues, or Jesus continues in Matthew, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. This might help explain why the Lord's Prayer, this kind of paradigm for prayer in Christianity, is so short. It's just a couple dozen words. Uh, this might go back to kind of Matthew's sense here that Jesus is teaching, uh, uh, teaching people not to be too wordy in how they pray. Matthew's audience in this context is primarily Jewish. And so here's what I think the lesson is. In Matthew, Jesus is teaching a Jewish audience who learned how to pray in childhood and who have prayed all throughout their life as devout Jews. Jesus is teaching them to pray with a different spirit and to pray in a new way. So that's the context of Matthew. In Luke, it's just a little bit different. Here's what uh, leads up to uh, the Lord's Prayer in Luke. He was praying. He is Jesus. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Does anything strike you as odd by that? That his disciples come up and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Well, presumably, the disciples would have known how to pray before this, right? There already were followers of Jesus for quite some time. Did they literally not know how to pray at all? Maybe. Luke's audience uh, is primarily uh, Gentile, so it might be that they are new to this. They don't have that Jewish background of prayer that teaches them what it looks like to pray. So maybe they really did have some curiosity 
about what it looked like, what it sounded like to pray in the right way. But there's a part of this last line here uh, that might also clarify another reason. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So they knew of these other followers of Christ who were disciples of John who had been taught to pray. And they too want to know how to pray. Maybe not just because they didn't know what it meant to pray, but because back then, prayer was one of the ways you distinguished who you, one of the ways of distinguishing your religious identity. And this actually happened in early Judaism. The different sects of Judaism uh, had different prayers that really showed uh, kind of their identity. So if I overheard Walter and Thelma praying, I would know immediately from their prayers kind of what sect or what, what group they were part of. And so maybe here the disciples are asking Jesus, hey, give us a prayer to pray so that when we pray it, everyone will immediately know that we are disciples of Christ. And, and not someone else. So two different possibilities emerge for kind of the reason for this prayer, depending on which gospel we read it in. Okay, so that's point two. You guys with me so far? Questions? Complaints? Uh, you take them outside if you have complaints. Uh, third, did you know the wording of Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer differs from the wording of Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, some of you might know this. Some of this uh, for some of you, might, this might come as a surprise. Uh, here's Matthew's version. It's going to sound a lot like what we pray in church. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the NRSV translation of Matthew's prayer. So that sounds pretty similar to what we pray each Sunday. Here's Luke's version. What stands out to you that's different about Luke's version in comparison to Matthew's? Shorter. So it's shorter. It's a good bit shorter. Exactly. So there's, it's more concise. Um, what else do you notice? How, what specifically is it missing that Matthew's version has? Right, so the beginning is different, right? The initial address is different. Matthew begins, our Father in heaven. Luke just begins, Father. Right, so it sounds a little bit different. It might, in fact, be the case that what we have in Luke's prayer is kind of the actual words that Jesus instructed his disciples to say. So he just had them addressing God as Father. So you say, Father, then you start the prayer. Matthew's version, by adding our Father in heaven, it might reflect the fact that by the time we get to Matthew, this prayer was already being used as part of an early Christian liturgy. So it's not just now a direct address to Father, something that you and I would pray, but now there's kind of an awareness that this is a collective prayer of a group of people. So Matthew begins thinking of many different people praying the prayer at once, our Father in heaven, and then continues. Uh, with the rest of it. So the, the content or the spirit behind it isn't all that different, but it might suggest two different uses, one more personal in Luke and one more corporate in Matthew. What else jumps out to you that's a little bit different? Your will be done, right? That's there in Matthew, but it's not there in Luke, right? So Luke leaves out this part of the petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, in Luke's version, you just say, your kingdom come, and then you go right then to the bread request, and you skip this middle line. Um, anything else? Any others? Sins and deaths. What is it? Sins and deaths. Sins and deaths. We're going to turn to that in just a second. So there's some different vocabulary there, right? So Cassie says, look, here in this case, uh, forgive us our sins, 
And here it says, forgive us our debts. So it's another, there's some different terminology between the two. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at some of those specifics. Uh, but just note that Luke's version is a little bit shorter than, than uh, Matthew's. And so one of the natural questions that, that I've heard students and other people ask is, well, which is, which is more original? Which is the right version? Right? There's two. Our Bible says it, right? They, both versions are in there. Which one do we trust? Which is the most original? Uh, is it that Luke started it with a short prayer and Matthew kind of got a little bit wordy uh, as, he, as he started framing the prayer? Or is that that Matthew started it and Luke wanted a shorter prayer and so he took some stuff out? Well, the fact is we don't really, really know. Uh, typically what scholars think, though, are that texts tend to expand in length over time rather than contract in length and time. Maybe it's also like lectures and sermons in that regard, that, that we typically grow in length as opposed to, to shorten in length. So if I had to guess, uh, I would say Luke probably was the earliest form and that Matthew expands it in a way that's very consistent with what Luke is saying, but Matthew expands it a little bit as he retells the story about Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer to his followers. Now, I will say just one last word about this. I, I actually think it's better not to think of it in terms of authentic and inauthentic or what was the first and what's the copy. I think we can just see this as two, uh, as two portraits of the same prayer. Just as the Gospels give us four portraits of the same Jesus, here Matthew and Luke give us two compatible but unique portraits of this one prayer that Jesus taught. And actually, I think to an ancient uh, reader of scripture, this would not have been odd. Jewish prayers at this time, um, even ones that were used in synagogue services, they came in many different forms. So you actually had some flexibility to add and subtract from prayer. So the fact that there are two different versions here, an ancient follower of Jesus would have just assumed that that's what happened, because this is what happened in synagogues with prayer uh, uh, many, many times. And if actually this sort of thing interests you about how Matthew differs from Luke and maybe what those differences mean, we're having a whole Theology Matters course on that. This is my little infomercial. Uh, in January, we're having a Theology Matters course called The Gospels in Comparison, where we're just kind of doing a very basic introduction to the Gospels with a particular attention to why and how and when do Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the same story in different ways. What are those differences, and then why do those differences matter? So if that sort of stuff interests you, uh, uh, keep an eye out for the Theology Matters course uh, later in January. Now, I want to get back to Cassie's point about the sins and debts. One of the really interesting things about saying the Lord's Prayer is that there, are, even in English-speaking congregations, there are three different ways to say it. Uh, actually, there might be a lot of different ways to say it, but we tend to say that one line about sins in three different ways. Some congregations say, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Other congregations say, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then I think I learned this in Catholicism, and I kind of default to this last version uh, that says, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, the question is, which one is right? Or which one is more right? Any votes? Sin, I heard some sin. What do we say here at First Pres? Yes. We say debts, right? I say trespasses still, or at least that's kind of programmed into me uh, from my background. I think this is actually one of those cases where all of the above are correct. Because there's a good reason for saying each of them. In Matthew's version, if we go back uh, and look back at this slide here, note that Matthew says, 
debts. And Luke says sins. And even in this is not just an issue with English translation. Even the Greek is different behind those two words. So it appears that the Gospels themselves preserve two different versions. Now, the question is about Matthew. What did he mean by debts? When you think of a debt, what do you think of? You think of money, right? You think of loans. You know, what sort of credit card debt do I have? We don't often speak of mortgages as debt, but it could be considered as a bigger picture of, of the debt that we owe uh, collectively. So did Matthew think of, of money debts? Well, it's possible that he was actually speaking of literal money debts. And here's the reason I think that might be so. In the Old Testament, there was this tradition that one in seven years, on kind of the Sabbath year, the seventh year, that there was actually a practice. We don't know how widely it was employed, but the Old Testament speaks of a practice where you forgave debts every seven years. So there actually was a practice, a system, where this, this sort of thing was recognized. So there's a possibility that in Matthew's context, this prayer functioned as a Sabbath year prayer. That is, this is the prayer that people prayed on that seventh year when they literally were forgiving debt. So you would say, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So people were actually forgiving real debts, and the person was praying, and God, forgive us our debts. Now, what, what is our debt to God? What do you think that would have meant? Now, that's a little bit me, uh, more metaphorical. Tithe. What is it? Tithe. It could mean tithing, right? We could stay in the literal and say that, that, that this is just money. Um, which would make sense. Like, God, can I not have to tithe the year I have to forgive everyone else their debt to me? Uh, that makes fiscal sense to me. Uh, I, would, I would pray that prayer if we had that system today. Uh, but what's the more, can you think of a more metaphorical meaning? What is our debt to God in another sense? What is it? Life? Life, yeah. Sin. In fact, one of the most prominent metaphors for sin in the Old Testament is the idea of a debt. Sin is thought to create a debt in an individual's heavenly account that God must balance by providing a punishment for the sin. This is a very Old Testament idea of sin. But it's possibility here that, that Matthew has in mind this scenario where people are literally forgiving debts, but then he uses that idea of forgiving debts literally as kind of a metaphor for God forgiving sins. Right? So Matthew's uh, meaning, I think, makes a lot of sense. Now, what's Luke doing when he says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? Um, I like biblical metaphors and, teaching, and teach classes on them and find them intriguing, but metaphors also can be confusing. And so I think Luke is just translating the metaphor out of the prayer. Luke knows its debts. Luke understands that, that that's the metaphor of the Hebrew Bible, but he's, 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 uh, he's, he's worried that, that maybe Doug is going to forget that, that debt means sin. And so Luke just translates it for us. So there's no confusion. He just says, look, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But if Matthew's context really was a Sabbath prayer, then Luke is actually transforming, not just translating, but transforming the context of how and when this prayer is used. Now, third and finally, what about trespasses? None of our versions has trespass in it. So where does trespass come from? Tootie, I'm really glad you asked. Uh, in the early 1500s, William Tyndale, who was one of the people who was one of the early translators of the Bible into English, we covered Tyndale this summer in our Theology Matters class about translation. Tyndale made one of the first widely published and used English Bibles. Um, when he translated the Lord's Prayer, guess what he used for sin and debt? trespass. Uh, and so Tyndale's Bible became very important. It became the background of the KJV. But even more importantly, 
In uh, 1539, when the English Book of Common Prayer was written, they used Tyndale's Bible as the background. So in the Book of Common Prayer, when we see the Lord's Prayer, it has trespass in it because it used Tyndale's translation. Well, the Book of Common Prayer becomes incredibly influential in shaping Christian liturgy, uh, Protestant liturgy, throughout the centuries. And so I, I think that's, for, the, for those of us who know it as trespasses, I think it's kind of a, a lasting imprint of the Book of Common Prayer, which goes back to Tyndale's uh, translation. Here's my more, important about all, my more important point about all of this. One of the moments I love when you pray the Lord's Prayer, not in a congregation, but in some more ecumenical context where there's people from different denominations, that moment I love is when you get to this line and there's that pause, right? Because it takes longer to say, and forgive us our trespasses, and, those, and we forgive those who trespass against us, then it does say, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So you need to allow a little bit of space as you pray for those sitting next to you who might know this prayer in a different language to catch up. And I think that's actually a beautiful metaphor of what it means to be unified in our theological diversity. I wish actually in many other ways we would leave that space that we leave in praying the prayer. I wish we would leave that for one another in a lot of other matters too that we leave space to be different, and then that space happens, and then we catch up and we continue where we're united together. I think it's actually a beautiful practice, and we do it in many, many times without even thinking about it. Um, by the way, I'm sensing this top 10 list might be a top 7 list uh, in light of time, so uh, we'll just kind of adjust on the fly here. Again, I need to talk to my publicist about who prepares these lectures uh, so long. Um, okay, next point. Did you know? The Lord's Prayer that we pray uh, has an ending that's not included in Mark, or excuse me, uh, it, should, it should not say Mark, it should say Matthew. Mark does not have the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the, Lord, the prayer we pray ends in a different way than what's in Matthew and Luke. You might have picked up on that from the, from the slides. The prayer we pray has this line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Right? We have it. If you look in the back of our bulletin, you'll see that. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes not from the Bible, but from an early first century, well, probably late first century uh, Christian writing um, uh, that, that has a bunch of different prayers in it and different liturgical things. And there's a copy of the Lord's Prayer but in this expanded form. So at the top, you can see, if you had Matthew right next to it, you'd see that this is virtually identical with Matthew's version. But then there's two added lines at the end. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. And amen. Uh, so it's very close to what we pray. They leave out kingdom. Um, and then there's this last little line, three times in the day, pray ye so. Right? So now for the first time, we get some liturgical instructions about how to use the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord, Jesus teaches the disciples these words and how to pray them, but he doesn't give any instructions about, well, how often do you pray this? When do you pray this? One of the ideas here is that, uh, about why this line was added is that in the Jewish tradition, there were uh, customs about praying three times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And there was a particular type of Jewish prayer that you prayed at those times of days. So it might be that what we're seeing here in the early church is the same liturgical practice that the synagogue had but now you're beginning to replace Jewish prayers with the Lord's Prayer. This might be what's going on. So there's this line, uh, for thine is the power, the glory forever and ever. Where does it come from? Some people have speculated that it comes from a, a similar sounding verse in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness and the power and the glory. That sounds familiar, right? 
and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So maybe there's an, uh, this idea is kind of inserted there at the end of the Lord's Prayer. There's also another echo of it in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. Now, that's not the Lord's Prayer, but there are two ideas there that the Lord's Prayer picks up on. And then Paul ends here, to him be the glory forever and ever Amen. If we understand this part here as an allusion to the Lord's Prayer, maybe we're beginning to see this idea that you end the Lord's Prayer with this kind of doxology about the kingdom, the power, and the glory. In fact, in, in Jewish prayers at this time period, it was, it, was, it was impossible to imagine a Jewish prayer in the first century CE that did not end in some sort of doxology. As one example of it, uh, one uh, prayer that the, the Jews would recite uh, included the phrase, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, which is called the Shema. The Jews would pray that or recite that. But at the end of it, because you couldn't just end there in a Jewish prayer, at the end of it, you would add a bunch of doxologies about God or words of praise and thanks to God. So it was a common practice that that's how you just ended a prayer in the first century CE. So maybe... The early church knew that. They took the Lord's Prayer and they said, yeah, we need to add an ending to it. That's a doxology to God. So my thought here is that that line that we pray, uh, for the kingdom and power and the glory are yours now and, forever, uh, now and forever, amen, it was not part of the original Lord's Prayer. So it, it's, it's beyond the original Lord's Prayer. And yet it reflects a practice of the church going back at least 2,000 years. We see it already here at the end of the first century uh, as a practice. Yeah, Rush. I did not know it when I learned the Catholic Our Father, and I can't say that that's true of every Catholic parish, but at least where I learned it through the kind of the CCD curriculum, um, we did not include it. We just prayed the words from Matthew. Um, so that's a case actually where Protestantism kind of adds something that Catholicism doesn't add. It's usually, well, I think of it in the reverse. If uh, this doesn't sound too much like nitpicking, but should you say Our Father, who art in heaven? Ah. Our Father, which art in heaven? Our Father, who art in heaven or which art in heaven? That's actually a grammatical question, which I'll defer to the many English teachers I suspect are in the room. But in English, we say who. We, say, we would say who because it's a person. Uh, which, is an object. which is an object. But the other point, though, in the Greek of Matthew, it's not our Father who art in heaven. That's, although that's what we say. It's our Father in heaven. There's no verb in the Greek. Uh, and art, by the way, is just an, an early modern English second person masculine singular pronoun, if you are, again, an English major. Uh, so that, that's just an archaic way of saying uh, are, uh, basically. It's a to-be verb. Anyway, um, let me... Um, yeah, am I going to do the last five points in five minutes? Yeah, probably not. Um, so let me... We'll do, we'll do some of them really quickly, okay? This will be the teaser to come back. Sixth point, although I'm not going to go into detail about it. Um, did you know the Lord's Prayer, uh, the language of the Lord's Prayer originally was Aramaic? Uh, the, the reason I point this out simply is because uh, the New Testament that we receive is in Greek, but Jesus did not speak in Greek by and large. The disciples did not speak by and large. The common everyday language of that time was Aramaic. The reason this is important with respect to the Lord's Prayer is that almost every Jewish prayer of that time period, synagogue prayer and so forth, was in Hebrew. 
you need to keep in mind that Jews of that time period didn't really speak Hebrew. Hebrew was the liturgical language. It was the language used in synagogues, but it was not the language of the marketplace and the household and so on and so forth. So what we see Jesus doing then in giving this prayer uh, through Aramaic is Jesus giving, is giving words in the vernacular or in the words of the common people uh, to speak and commune with God. And this actually would be a really important theme for the Reformers much later. Uh, at the time of the Reformers, the Catholic Mass was in Latin. Very, very few people knew Latin. Latin was the language of the liturgy, of the church liturgy. Uh, and so one of the things that the Reformers do, they begin to translate music and psalms and liturgy and prayers into the language that the people spoke day in and day out outside of the church. It was a way in which uh, the reformers tried to create uh, a certain, uh, they tried to elevate the participation of the congregation in the common language of, of liturgy and worship. And I think in a certain way, Jesus is doing something similar by giving us these prayers, not in the liturgical language of Hebrew uh, of that time period, but, but in fact in the common everyday language. Um, speaking of languages, the Lord's Prayer has probably been translated into at least 1,400 different languages. Uh, the New Testament we know has been translated into over 1,440 languages. So the Lord's Prayer was at least as translated as that, but probably a good deal more so because before we were in the 1500s, 1600s, when we were starting to get all of those vernacular language translations of the Bible. Even before that, people were translating the Lord's Prayer into the vernacular language. In fact, it was so common to do this uh, that, that uh, the Lord's Prayer became, in a certain way, uh, or I should say this, collections of translations of the Lord's Prayer were used uh, in philology, in kind of the study of languages, to illustrate the differences between languages. Because it was almost presumed that the Lord's Prayer was the most translated thing in the world. And so people started making these... Uh, these maps, uh, it's hard to tell what this is, but it's, it's a map of Lithuania, actually. Uh, but it has, it's, there were these maps of the world that showed the languages of the peoples uh, where, where you were geographically on the map. But the, what they used to illustrate the language of those people are little snippets from the Lord's Prayer. So this gives us some insight into kind of how universally known this prayer was even before the Bible uh, had been widely translated into the vernacular. Um, let me do, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do, do two more. Uh, I think I can do that in, in a couple minutes here. The Lord's Prayer, I've kind of alluded to this already, the Lord's Prayer closely resembles several early Jewish prayers. Uh, there was no exact copy of the Lord's Prayer found from Jewish synagogues and so forth. But there were, we do know of prayers that would have been prayed in first century synagogues that in many different regards sound a lot like the Lord's Prayer. And I just want to give you an example or two of them. This is the Kaddish prayer. Kaddish is a, is a Hebrew word that means essentially holy or holiness. Uh, it, it, the Kaddish prayer begins this way. Magnified and sanctified may his great name be in the world that he created as he wills. And may his kingdom come in your life and in your days and in the lives of all the house of Israel swiftly and soon. Now, that's not a direct quote from the Lord's Prayer by any means, but you hear this prayer and you hear some of the similar themes that emerge in the Lord's Prayer. It's also true of another very important uh, liturgical prayer in Judaism called the Prayer of the 18 Benedictions. There was a series of 18 little phrases uh, that offered blessings and thanksgivings, uh, and a couple of these also resonate with the Lord's Prayer. For instance, the sixth benediction reads like this, forgive us our Father 
For we have sinned against you, blot out and remove our transgressions from before your sight, for your mercies are manifold. Again, it's not the exact same thing as the Lord's Prayer, but you, if you knew the Lord's Prayer and you knew these prayers, you would hear a certain resonance. So I think when Jesus uh, taught this prayer, it would have sounded familiar to Jesus' Jewish followers. And many of Jesus' followers were of Jewish, of course. So this would have sounded familiar. The really unique part, and if we had more time, I could unpack this. The really unique part uh, that Jesus adds in the Lord's Prayer are the various our petitions that comes in the end. So the beginning part, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name of the kingdom come, and so on and so forth, that, that had a lot of precedent in Judaism. But the prayers for daily bread and so forth, that begins to take on a slightly more unique, not completely unique, but a slightly more unique characteristic. So Jesus kind of takes this uh, kind of model of prayer in Judaism and makes it his own. I'm going to skip one and get you out of here uh, on this. And this might be the most important point. When we recite the Lord's Prayer, I want to suggest that we participate in the holiness of habit. One of the great complaints of the early reformers was that Catholic liturgy seemed overly rote, overly routine, overly mechanical. And I have to admit, I felt this way as a Catholic many, many years ago, that we just go into church and you say the same thing every week and you don't think about it right? It's just there. It's kind of just, uh, it, it's automatic. It's habitual in a way that ceased being meaningful to me. And when I uh, first got involved in Protestant churches, um, I was amazed at the variety of liturgy, that each week there were new prayers, there were new things being said, new confessions, new liturgy, so on and so forth. And early in my life, uh, I was in my 20s at, at that time, I loved the freshness of these new words and new prayers because they, they helped me to be more heartfelt in my worship of God. They helped me to think more about the words I was praying. But over time, I've come to appreciate more deeply the, the, the repeated liturgy and habits, not just of Catholicism, but just the idea that as Christians, we do certain things out of habit. We say certain things that Christians have said week in and week out, not only over weeks and months, and years, and centuries, but even over millennia. I've come to see that there's a certain holiness in the habit of saying this prayer week in and week out. Uh, it's this moment in church, and this is so rare in our lives, where we don't have to think, how do I say the right thing to God? How do I get the right words for the right prayer on the right day at this right time? For that moment, when we say these ancient words that we have memorized, we are freed from the, the pressure of perfection because we know that it's in the reciting of this prayer, it's in the repeating of it, it's, it's in the habit of it that we enter into this holy space with God, not because we came up with our own words, not because we found the words that perfectly fit the demographic that we are interested in reaching here at this church, but because we've united our voices with Christians throughout the ages who have had the habit, the holy habit, of saying these words together. And it's that idea of a holy habit of saying the Lord's Prayer that I want to continue to reflect on with you in the weeks ahead as we go back to our Sunday school classes and continue to study these ancient words and why they matter for us today. Thank you very much.